Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, uh, welcome to, welcome to this most uh, this most timely event. We had no idea when we invited um, Hans and Quentin some moons ago to come and uh, discuss Germany um, that um, the Greek election. I should have known, being half Greek, but uh, was actually going to be. Uh, the day before. Um, I'm delighted uh, to uh, invite you to this uh, discussion and, uh, and, book, and book, book launch uh, in our LSE European Institute uh, series of public lectures and panel discussions, which we call Perspectives on Europe. And um, the Twitter hashtag, uh, for those of you who are interested, is hash LSE German question. LSE German question. And um, there will be, um, uh, we will follow normal LSE um, form, and that our speaker will speak for perhaps about 25 minutes or so. And then our respondent discussant, um, who I'll, I'll introduce both of them, of course, in one moment, uh, will then speak uh, for about uh, 15 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to the floor. And there will be a reception afterwards, to which everybody is very warmly invited. And um, the book by our speaker, Hans Kunlani, will also uh, be available, The Paradox of German Power, which I commend to you warmly, enthusiastically. Um, so uh, I hope as many of you as possible will be able to stay on and uh, share, a drink, um, share a drink afterwards. So I said timely event, and of course it's not often uh, that a country holds a general election and all the public debate is about what another country will do about that election uh, result. Yeah. Though I guess perhaps we can count Ukraine as a, as, a, as a bit of it, as an exception. Now, to those of us who thought that the Atlantic Treaty of 1949 and the Treaty of Rome of 1957 and uh, the Elysee uh, Treaty of 1962, if I remember correctly. Uh, to those of thought, us who thought that those treaties had definitively answered the German question, uh, the, events of the, last, the events of the last seven years and the last 24 hours might have come as a rude shock. Now, that the German question should, should uh, suddenly start to raise its head again comes even more as a shock after 60 years in which Germany was not so much a question but an answer for the rest of Europe. Uh, an answer with its socio-economic model based on a thriving free market and a strong and dependable social safety net. An answer to the question of how to run a monetary policy, that being, of course, in a way which preserves the value of money rather than devalues it. And, the answer, and an answer to, uh, to the question of what kind of fiscal policy to run. And the answer being, of course, that you cannot spend money that you haven't earned. Now, to some um, ordo-liberals, uh, even a half-Greek one like myself, <laughs> such propositions are self-evident, um, axiomatic even. So we do not worry overly about how economic strength feeds into political ascendancy, which is the insight which has much preoccupied the French since the 1950s, particularly since the 1960s, and to which the euro was supposed to supply the answer. But that's clearly not what many of our fellow citizens believe. So the German question is back, it would seem. Now, to explore the accuracy of this proposition, 
and its implications of this for all of us, with far greater knowledge of the subject than I certainly could ever muster. We're delighted to welcome Hans Punani. Hans is Research Director at the European Council on Foreign, uh, Foreign Relations, where he specializes in German foreign policy. He is an Associate Fellow of the Institute of German Studies at Birmingham. He has previously worked as a full-time journalist, having been Berlin correspondent of The Observer. And as I said a moment ago, his book, uh, The Paradox of German Power, is, uh, is partly what we're launching. It's about what we are, we're about this evening, uh, launching that, and there are many copies, uh, available, copies available for outside. Quentin Peel will be known, I'm sure, to many of you, some maybe personally, many others of you by sight and sound. Um, he, of course, has been a commentator for the Financial Times on a whole range of issues, especially Europe, matters European, um, for uh, a long time. Uh, he has served as a chief correspondent in Germany, in Berlin, where he was from 2010 to 2014. He's been was associate editor as well of the Financial Times, international affairs editor, you name it, foreign affairs editor, chief foreign affairs columnist, um, you name it. And uh, his knowledge, his expertise on Europe and on Germany in particular have been even more in demand than usual, I noticed the last few weeks and months with, uh, of course, the, the exhibition on Germany at the British, British Museum having been a catalyst for, as well as events in Europe, uh, an event, uh, a catalyst for a degree of interest in Germany. It's been rarely events quite so intensely and widely, as I recall, in my many years of, of um, dallying with matters European. <coughs> so we're delighted that Quentin is also joining us this evening and will uh, share th- some thoughts on, on, um, on Hans's um, remarks, on his observations, um, and some thoughts uh, of his own, but all tangling with the same topic of the German question. So we really, as you'll see, couldn't have assembled a better cast list for this evening's discussion of Germany. And without further ado, I will ask Hans <coughs> to come. Um, if you would like to speak stand, standing up, and or would you like to sit there here. as you'd like to sit? Absolutely fine. That is perfect. Hans, we look forward very much to what you have to tell us. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, um, Morris, um, for that um, kind introduction um, and, um, and for inviting uh, me to, to come and speak here tonight. I'm delighted to be at the LSE and I'm looking forward very much to the discussion with both of you and, and, and with, um, with the rest of you here as well. I can already tell from your description of yourself as a um, half-Greek ordo-liberal that it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Um, You've kind of set it up perfectly in, in, in your introduction, uh, Morris. Um, uh, the German question, which um, seemed uh, for um, 60 years or so to, to have been um, resolved, um, seems uh, in the last five years since the Euro crisis um, began um, to have returned. Um, there's been um, much debate um, uh, all over Europe and, and, and elsewhere about um, German power within Europe, a, a problem which, um, which um, seemed uh, to have been solved. Um, in 1953, Thomas Mann famously uh, called for a European Germany rather than a, a German Europe. Um, but in the last five years since the crisis began, it's become almost a commonplace to say that um, we now live in a, in a, in a German Europe. 
Um, in particular, there's been um, lots of discussion about German uh, hegemony. Um, again, this concept of Germany as a reluctant hegemon um, or as a potential hegemon um, seems to have, have become almost a, a commonplace. Um, and um, some um, analysts uh, have gone even further than that uh, and have perceived the emergence of a kind of German empire uh, within Europe, um, which is obviously a term that's even stronger than, than hegemony, um, which implies a certain degree of consent. Um, to give you just two um, examples of that, um, Martin Wolf, um, Quentin's um, colleague in the Financial Times, um, writing in 2012 um, about the um, uh, asymmetric uh, adjustment uh, within the Eurozone, in other words, deflation in the periphery uh, without inflation in Germany, um, wrote, this is not a monetary union, uh, it's far more like an empire. Um, similarly, uh, George Soros, um, uh, writing also in 2012, um, warned of the danger uh, of a Europe that was permanently divided between surplus and deficit um, countries in a kind of a self-fulfilling, self-perpetuating uh, dynamic, which he described as a German empire with the periphery uh, as the hinterland. Um, these are big descriptions which are quite extraordinary uh, to, be, to be hearing um, uh, uh, now at the beginning of the 21st um, century. But obviously these questions about German power within Europe have a long history as well. Um, implicit, it seems to me, in this debate about a new German question um, is the idea that history has in some way returned uh, to Europe, and in particular that Germany um, has uh, in some way regressed or reverted to a role comparable to the problematic one that it had between uh, 1871, uh, when Germany was unified, uh, and 1945. Um, obviously, the most extreme illustration uh, of that is the um, description that the comparison of Chancellor Merkel with Hitler um, uh, that we've seen on the streets of Athens and, and also in, in the Greek press um, or descriptions in the Italian press and, as well as the Greek press of, um, of uh, a Fourth Reich and so on. Um, those are, those are um, clearly, um, clearly absurd. Um, but um, uh, I think um, it's necessary to engage seriously um, with... Um, uh, with um, Claims like that of um, Anthony Giddens, uh, who wrote in his book uh, that came out last year, Turbulent and Mighty Continent, quote, Germany seems to have achieved by Pacific means what it was unable to bring about through military conquest, the domination of Europe, which is, again, um, strong stuff, I think, from a very serious uh, thinker, obviously. Um, Germans, meanwhile, uh, are offended, uh, baffled by these um, references to Germany's pre-1945 um, history. Um, and uh, many of them see, uh, I mean, I, I think most Germans, it would be fair to say, see that pre-1945 history as being simply irrelevant to um, the current crisis um, in Europe. Um, Germany has changed, um, Europe has changed, obviously, above all, with the uh, European Union. Uh, and therefore, it's simply anachronistic um, to talk about hegemony in this, in this context. Um, these terms are, are simply not appropriate. Um, they refer to um, a kind of international relations in, in Europe that, that doesn't exist anymore. And some Germans, um, uh, it seems to me, see these references to pre-1945 
um, uh, history uh, as being um, simply uh, a pretext for extortion, a way to get German money. In other words, as a sort of cynical attempt by uh, by people in in the eurozone periphery um, to to get German uh, money. So the debate about German power in the in the last few years has been um, a very polarised one. Um, there's been an absence of agreement about whether German history is relevant at all, um, but little discussion, it seems to me, of exactly how it might be relevant. Um, and really, that's what my book um, tries to do, is to try to explore this question of, of the relevance of um, German, uh, Germany's pre-1945 history um, to um, the current situation. Um, the German question um, goes back to... Um, uh, well, it goes back centuries, but a particular version of the German question goes back to German unification, as I mentioned, uh, in 1871, which Benjamin Dis- Disraeli, who was British Prime Minister at the time, famously uh, described as, as having completely destroyed the balance of power uh, in Europe. It completely changed the sort of geopolitical um, uh, dynamic uh, within Europe. And the German question, uh, as, as, as it emerged at that time, uh, was this... Um, a particular situation whereby Germany was too powerful for any of the other uh, great powers to challenge on their own, but not powerful enough to defeat a coalition of two or more of them, um, obviously in, in, in military uh, terms. And so Ludwig Dehio, the German uh, historian, um, referred, I think correctly, to Germany's position in Europe at that time uh, as being one of semi-hegemony. Halb-hegemony was the original term he used um, in German. Now, this um, kind of in-between situation was uh, problematic because um, it, it sort of structurally encouraged um, other European great powers to form coalitions to balance against um, German power. And that, in turn, created uh, fear in Germany um, of those types of coalitions. Um, Bismarck's famous cauchemar de coalition, the nightmare of, of coalitions. Um, And this is what international relations theorists uh, refer to as a security dilemma, whereby um, states take measures to um, improve their own security, but in doing so, they threaten the security of others who then take uh, countermeasures uh, and a kind of a spiral uh, develops. And so um, what the German historian Hans-Peter Schwarz called a dialectic uh, of encirclement uh, began, uh, which culminated uh, in World War I. Now, after um, World War II... Um, the German question seemed uh, to be to have been um, resolved by the division of Germany and by the integration of the Federal Republic, um, which was created in 1949, into the into the Western Alliance, the so-called Westbindung. Um, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 uh, and the uh, reunification of, of, of Germany that, that followed uh, less than a year later um, reopened um, the German question. Um, And at the time, there were um, fears, particularly in France uh, and in Britain, um, about the power of this um, enlarged um, uh, Germany. Um, uh, And um, uh, François Mitterrand, the French president at that time, um, took the approach, um, which I think fits into the approach that previous French leaders had followed, which was to see European integration uh, as a way to constrain uh, German power, and in particular the, 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 the European single currency, um, the euro. Um, the idea of, um, uh, of economic uh, and monetary union had been around uh, since the 70s, um, but little progress uh, had been made. Um, and even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, Mitterrand famously told Margaret Thatcher that without a common currency, uh, we are, quote, subordinate to the Germans' will. 
Um, and so after um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, Mitterrand's response was to try to put pressure on Germany to move ahead much more quickly um, uh, with, um, with, um, uh, with economic and monetary um, union, um, and in particular to set a timetable um, uh, for um, negotiations to begin before the end of 1990. Otherwise, as he, as he put it, we will return to the world of 1913. In other words, the classical German question. Um, Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor at that time, succumbed to that um, pressure and uh, uh, agreed to um, have an intergovernmental uh, conference by um, the end of 1990. Um, And that seemed, um, again, to have um, solved the the German uh, question and and seemed in particular to have confirmed um, the approach of um, the German centre-right going back to Adenauer uh, that, um, that, that German problems could, could only be solved under a European roof, as, as Adenauer um, had famously um, put it. The idea that there was this kind of symbiotic relationship between uh, Germany uh, and Europe. Um, Kohl famously talked about European integration and German reunification um, being two sides of the same coin. Um, that seemed to have been, have been confirmed. Um, however... Um, I argue in the book that in the 25 years, um, almost 25 years since then, there have been three shifts that have taken place in Germany um, that have led to um, uh, a new uh, version of the, the German question. And I'd like to just run through those briefly. Um, the first is a, is, a, is a shift in security policy, and in particular the, on the question of the use of military force. Um, the second is um, to do with collective memory and German national identity, and the third is to do with the German economy. Um, during the first decade um, after reunification, uh, in other words in the 1990s, German security policy um, underwent um, a shift. Um, Germany, um, which until then um, had uh, made a very, very limited contribution to um, to um, uh, to uh, solving um, global conflicts, um, seemed to converge uh, with France and the UK on, on the question of the use of military force. Um, and the central, um, I mean, it took a series of sort of baby steps towards a more um, a more um, active uh, role um, for the Bundeswehr. Um, and the central principle of German foreign policy during that period was Bundesteil, loyalty to the to the alliance. Um, and this shift culminated in the um, participation of the Bundeswehr in um, in the NATO military intervention in Kosovo in 1999, which is the first time that German troops had been sent into combat since World War II. And it was famously justified by Joschka Fischer, the German foreign minister um, at, at that time, on, on the basis of this idea of nie wieder Auschwitz, never again uh, Auschwitz, um, in the light of the ethnic cleansing um, in, um, in, uh, in Kosovo. Um, however, and, and this is the, the important shift which I think has taken place, um, in the last decade since then, opposition to the use of military force has once again hardened uh, in Germany against the background of um, Germany's involvement in the um, uh, ISAF mission in Afghanistan and the perceived failure of um, Iraq and, and other um, military interventions. That's the first shift. The second shift, um, is, um, which is connected to that, is a, a shift, as I mentioned, in collective memory in Germany and, and, and national identity. Um, in a sense, uh, during the whole post-war period, there's been a kind of a competition between two sets of collective memories um, in, in Germany, uh, one uh, set of which uh, involves Germans as perpetrators and the other uh, Germans uh, as victims. 
from the 1960s onwards, when Germany started to engage with the Nazi past, um, collective memories in which Germans were perpetrators uh, became uh, increasingly uh, dominant, and the Holocaust became this central collective memory. Um, but since the millennium, since around the millennium, collective memories in which Germans are victims uh, have become uh, more powerful. Um, above all, the uh, memory of uh, the Allied bombing of um, German uh, cities uh, in World War II. And significantly, from about 2002 onwards, um, there was an outpouring of, of collective memory, as I say, about the, the Allied bombing of German cities. Above all, Dresden as the kind of icon uh, of that. And interestingly, given the timing, this kind of fed into and was fed by opposition to the Iraq, uh, the Iraq War. So there's been this kind of competition between these two collective memories, Auschwitz uh, and Dresden. And the importance of this is that it seems to me that there's been uh, a, a kind of a sense of victimhood in Germany that, that's emerged and, and become uh, much stronger. And I'll come back to that um, later on, because I think the, the interesting question is about whether that's um, influenced um, Germany's response to the Euro crisis. Um, the third shift, um, which is perhaps the most relevant to the Euro crisis, but perhaps also the, the, the most well-known because so much has been written about this in the last five years, is the transformation in the German economy that took place um, in the 2000s. Um, during Gerhard Schröder's second term, term as Chancellor from 2002 to 2005, um, there were a number of reforms, above all the so-called Agenda 2010, which uh, radically reformed the, the welfare state. Um, and that's often perceived, not least in Germany itself, as, as having um, caused this turnaround in, in the German economy, this recovery of the German uh, economy. I actually think that, um, that more significant than that um, were a number of other things that uh, took place, not so much um, steps that the government took, but, um, but uh, steps that um, German industry took. In particular, the outsourcing of German manufacturing uh, to Central uh, and Eastern Europe, which firstly made uh, German manufacturing more competitive, but it also put downward uh, pressure on wages uh, in Germany uh, itself. At the same time, Germany benefited from the creation of the single currency, which um, uh, created a credit boom in the so-called periphery, what we now call the periphery. And at the same time, they also made German uh, exports more competitive beyond Europe because they were benefiting from a weaker currency than they had uh, before the creation of the single currency. Now, the German economy recovered, but in the same time, at the same time, it seems to me also um, uh, uh, this, this um, transformation slightly um, uh, skewed the German economy and in particular made it more export dependent. It had always been export dependent to some extent, but the contribution of exports to Germany's GDP went from 33% in 2000 to 48% in 2010, which is an extraordinarily high figure for an economy the size of Germany. It's remained about that, um, about that level uh, since then. And uh, during the same period, Germany went from a current account deficit to a uh, current account surplus, and it's, made, it's, it's remained at around 7% uh, for the last um, uh, few years. And so although the German economy recovered, um, the, it, it also became uh, more vulnerable to um, uh, external shocks. Now, my argument in the book is that as a result of, uh, of this trend in, in particular, the German question, which, uh, as I mentioned, seemed to have been history, uh, has now uh, re-emerged not in geopolitical form, but in geoeconomic form. Um, whereas in the past Germany had faced potential enemies on, uh, on all sides, it now is surrounded on all sides by NATO allies and European partners. In other words, in geopolitical terms, Germany's benign. 
However, Germany's persistent current account surplus um, and the existence of the single currency itself, in other words, the interdependence between Germany and uh, other economies in Europe, puts intolerable pressures uh, on other countries in the Eurozone, particularly the countries of the so-called periphery. Um, And so in a sense, therefore, Germany is creating instability. Its economy is creating instability uh, in the same way as its uh, military power uh, once did. But... Germany remains too fragile to take on the burdens of hegemony, whether that's through fiscal transfers or a mutualisation of European debt or through moderate uh, inflation. So, uh, uh, in in other words, although Germany's increased power and, it has to be said, France's relative weakness have allowed Germany to impose its preferences uh, on others in the Eurozone, it's too small to be a European uh, hegemon, as some are urging it to, uh, to become. This position is strikingly similar to that of Germany uh, within Europe between 1871 and and 1945. In other words, Germany's returned to this position of of semi-hegemony that Ludwig Dehio described, um, except in geo-economic form. Now, what this might mean in concrete terms um, is a geo-economic version of the kind of conflicts uh, that existed uh, in Europe um, during that period from 1871 to, to 1945. And in particular, something analogous to the kind of competitive dynamic of coalition building between great powers that you had um, during that period. Since the Euro crisis began, um, EU member states have adopted a mixture of what international relations theorists call bandwagoning and balancing in relation to Germany. On the one hand, some EU member states, particularly those um, uh, those uh, countries in Central uh, Europe whose economies are now deeply integrated into the German manufacturing uh, supply chain, uh, are, it seems to me, beginning to form a kind of geoeconomic equivalent of a sphere of influence. On the other hand, um, other EU member states, particularly those of the so-called periphery, have found themselves under increasing pressure uh, to to form what George Soros called a common front um, against Germany. And that, in turn, is leading to a geo-economic version of the old German fear of encirclement. Um, Whereas Germany once feared a coalition of strong militaries, it now fears a coalition of weak economies. This fear, it seems to me, has increased particularly since the European Council in the, um, in the summer of 2012, uh, which, as you'll remember, is uh, where um, uh, France and Italy and Spain essentially ganged up on, on Germany uh, and forced it to um, uh, enable the European Stability Mechanism, the Eurozone Bailout Fund, to, um, to, uh, to directly recapitalise banks in crisis countries. And shortly after that, uh, Mario Draghi uh, made his famous promise to do whatever it takes to save um, the euro. Uh, and created outright monetary transactions. Now, in much of Europe, this was seen as a breakthrough that finally broke the feedback loop um, that had existed since the beginning of the crisis between bad banks and sovereign debt and saved the euro. Um, But in Germany, it was seen as a defeat. Spiegel, for example, called it the night that Merkel lost. Um, Now, I finished writing um, the book in 2013, um, but it seems to me that this zero-sum dynamic... Um, within the Eurozone has continued uh, since then. And most recently, in the last couple of weeks, um, the European Court of Justice um, had made a preliminary ruling um, on 
on the legality of, of OMT, um, which seemed to clear the way not just for OMT itself, but for the program of quantitative easing, which has subsequently uh, been announced. And again, this was seen as being a breakthrough. The periphery breathed a sigh of relief uh, when this ruling um, came through. Um, but um, there's massive opposition in Germany to both of these um, both of these programs. Um, I'm told that Merkel in private is um, scathing um, about um, about quantitative easing. Um, and uh, you only have to look at the German press in the last couple of weeks to see a kind of a flood um, of, um, of, of anger uh, about, uh, about, about this. Um, and it's this sense of, of having lost control, particularly of the ECB, um, which is, I think, feeding this sense of victimhood that I, that I mentioned earlier on, and is also fueling the rise of the um, Alternative für Deutschland, the um, Alternative for Germany, the, the Eurosceptic Party, um, which didn't um, uh, make it into the Bundestag in the, in the election in the autumn of 2013, but I think did extraordinarily well, given the fact that it had only been created a year earlier and, and got nearly 5% of the vote and has continued to become uh, stronger uh, since then, and I think will only get stronger. Um, so, um, just to um, just to finish off, but but also to tr- to try to bring us to um, the current um, uh, debate uh, following the um, Greek election um, yesterday. Um, it seems to me that although these steps that the European Central Bank um, has has taken have, have kept the euro together. Um, they're not enough um, on their own to create growth uh, in the Eurozone or to bring down the extraordinarily high levels of unemployment that you have, and particularly in Greece uh, and in Spain. Um, and so, as a result, um, frustrated with the failure of centre-left parties and centre-right parties, voters are increasingly turning to these radical left-wing, right-wing um, parties. Um, obviously, after yesterday's election uh, in Greece, uh, Syriza uh, will now um, form a government. Podemos uh, in Spain uh, could find itself in a similar position um, uh, later this year, but I think the most alarming development is the rise of the Front National um, in, um, in France. Um, it seems to me that these parties are, are only going to get stronger um, uh, unless uh, France, Italy and Greece um, can create uh, growth uh, and jobs. Um, now, I'm sceptical um, that they can do so without a big shift in, in Eurozone uh, economic policy that goes beyond quantitative um, easing. Um, but it also seems to me increasingly difficult to see how they can do that um, without um, joining forces and taking a much more confrontational uh, approach to Germany uh, than, they've, than they've done so far. Um, it would be very interesting to see what happens now in the next couple of weeks um, uh, after this Greek election, but the, uh, certainly the uh, initial German reaction um, has been um, that there can't be um, debt relief um, uh, and certainly not a major um, shift in policy, precisely because the Germans look at this through the principle of moral hazard. And, 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 and even though um, Greece is a small economy uh, and the amounts of money are, are relatively small, um, they see this as, as creating um, an even bigger problem. And, 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 um, and so they're very reluctant to do this. So in other words, you once again have this zero-sum uh, dynamic um, uh, within the Eurozone. Um, so it seems to me that the geopolitical dilemmas that Europe struggled with um, for centuries uh, have um, returned uh, in geoeconomic form, um, centred this time on this conflict between um, the uh, interests uh, of creditor countries and debtor countries that are locked into the single currency. Uh, and um, the, um, the question for me uh, uh, is how much conflict uh, we'll need in Europe uh, in order to resolve that dynamic.
very, a very stimulating set of uh, observations, uh, Hansen, for getting us off to a very good discussion. It certainly nourished, uh, stimulated my interest in, uh, in reading your book. Um, Sorry and, to be so uh, there's plenty of propositions. Well, that's right. That's, that's life. Um, plenty of propositions for us to uh, tangle with and dress in some way or other. And uh, that droit de regard over over the um, the aunt about over the uh, answers to Hans or responses to Hans falls to our other invited guest to Quentin uh, Quentin Pilpit. I'm sure you will have much to say. Um, on these initial observations, we look forward to hearing. Mm. Tell us, give us your thoughts, please. Right, well, thank you, Maurice, and uh, that was a splendid introduction, Hans. This is an excellent book, and I do commend it to you. Um, I have enjoyed reading it very much. Few too many footnotes, I think, Hans. <laughs> Not as a non-academic, I find this constant need to go and check what I'm actually looking at uh, might have done with a few fewer footnotes, but nonetheless. Um, end notes, end notes. Right. And it's particularly good, I think, the central part of the book, which is this excellent analysis of, of the, 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 the moving picture of German foreign policy making. Um, and we'll come back to this. Hans has been slightly unlucky, I think, in finishing the book, okay. just as then the Germans decided to have a great foreign policy yeah. review. Yeah. Um, he's inevitably focused very much on his rather polemical conclusion, which is that the German question is indeed back to haunt us in the geoeconomic sphere. I'm very interested by the balance between the geopolitical and the geoeconomic and how the two might interrelate. But my problem with the book is that I think at the end of it, Hans, I still feel slightly uncomfortable that... Um, you're, f you're fitting things into a pattern that doesn't quite explain everything. Um, and I'd like to just go back a little bit then, perhaps, to my own experience of, if you like, German power. Now, something that I expect Hans and I both suffered from when we were newspaper correspondents in Germany was working for a news desk that is constantly saying, are they coming back? Are the Nazis here again? Where are they? It must be rising again because surely that's the great story. And constantly having to say, actually, no. It's this is not the FT, that. not the Sun. Is yeah, that, absolutely. The kind of no, no, no. From your from your my colleagues at the Guardian would find it, and oh, everything. Well, you know, where's the story about? Um, and indeed, uh, I'll, I'll look at them in slightly more detail later. But um, you know, the rise of the Alternative for Deutschland. This must be it again. You know, absolute conviction. And the trouble is, sitting there in Germany, it always looks much more. Uh, muddled much more difficult to explain um, Germany is a profoundly provincial country plagued by its provincialism and therefore explaining German power to a highly centralised country like Britain or indeed to France is actually quite difficult because in our guts we don't understand German instinctive federalism, for example. But <coughs> I, I want to just 
look, and I'll come try and pick one or two things out of Hans's presentation as well, but just to reflect a little bit of my perception of German power, I suppose the first time I came face to face with um, the sort of German political process was when I was chief correspondent in Brussels in the 1980s. And I remember going to see the German ambassador uh, to find out what the hell his government's policy was on reform of the common agricultural policy, which happened to be the thing at the time. And I asked him this question, he looked at me and he said, Herr Peel, you're quite right to ask the question. I don't know what my government's policy is on the common agricultural policy. The foreign ministry tells me one thing, the finance ministry tells me another, the economics ministry tells me another, and the councillor tells me something else. I don't know which to pursue. And I was really struck at that time in the mid-80s in Brussels that German power at that time, Germany was the country that above all others failed to punch its weight in that rather horrid English expression dramatically failed to punch its weight. And indeed, issue after issue would come up. Germany would grumble, be muddled, and then finally pay the check that solved the problem. It was the case with the cohesion funds for Spain or the Mediterranean programs, Maurice, you must remember, for Greece, when Andreas Papandreou, that great giant of Greek socialist politics threatened alongside Maggie Thatcher to veto and veto and veto until he got his money Um, and Germany just paid the bill now in a way and this is why Hans is asking the right questions because the moment of truth does come with unification but I think not so much because suddenly Germany is a single country and can behave with a real national interest. But it was also because Germany just paid so much money to unify itself. This enormous flood of money to Eastern Germany. And when today Germany is much, much less willing to put its money up in Europe, it's because its voters are saying, we've already done the transfer union, we did it to Eastern Germany, why should we do it again to Greece or Portugal or wherever it may be? No more bailouts. So there was a shift, if you like, in selfishness, shift to a more, I would argue that the Germans got a bit of the British disease, give us our money back. Um, so that was the old style Germany but is Germany today post unification if you like slightly the implication of Hans's argument the new bully now when I arrived back in Berlin I was twice chief correspondent in, in Germany once in the early 90s in Bonn and second time the four years from 2010 to 2013 um, right through the Eurozone crisis one of the first big interviews I did when I got back was with Schäuble at the finance ministry. And he explained to me <coughs> his conception of how to deal with the Eurozone crisis. And above all, he said, what we need is what we lacked in the 1930s. We're facing dramatic recession. We need a stabilizing force in Europe. And that stabilizing force cannot be Germany alone for political reasons. We cannot be the sole stabilizing force. It's got to be a Franco-German stabilizing force. The two of us are the only ones big enough to finance effectively what would be an international monetary fund for Europe. When, when did you say you said this? About March 2010. Yeah. 
before May, i.e. the concept that became the European Financial Stability Fund and then the European Stability Mechanism was a German concept. Putting up the money to actually be the, the fallback position. And what we saw from Germany throughout this Eurozone process was not... I think, a table thumping, but it was a certain German bloody-mindedness that says, we've got it right, and everybody else should actually learn that lesson, i.e., we don't, as Morris said at the beginning, (laughs) spend more than we earn. And everybody else has got to learn that lesson. But we also need, in times of crisis, to have this backup. So what you've got is Germany coming up with solutions rather slowly in their very muddled, difficult internal processes. Everybody else tearing their hair out that it's so slow. But at the end of the day, they actually pretty nearly did it. And now we're slipping back into Greece again, so maybe they're not. But... I didn't see this as a Germany, if you like, being brutal to everybody else. It was Germany desperately looking for a solution to save this common currency, which, as Merkel said again and again and again, was the real heart of Europe, and therefore the real, uh, if the the euro fails, the European Union fails again and again and again she would repeat that so they were absolutely determined to save it absolutely determined to restore confidence and then just a final thought about thank God in a way that it was somebody like Angela Merkel doing this if it had been Gerhard Schroeder I can imagine that actually he'd have been much more of a bully I talked to Mario Monti a little while ago about how Germany exercised its power and influence in the European Council in Brussels. And he said it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Merkel is in no way a bully. She never bangs the table. She never insists. The problem is nobody else dares speak up against her. That is really the issue. Not that Germany's laying down the law, but that the rest are scared. Anyway... Um, I think the problem, my problem with Hans's solution is that the the danger of saying the German question is what's come back to haunt us is, it therefore tends to say that is the problem and the rest didn't have a problem. Um, But actually, as we know perfectly well, it was just as much, if not more, the profligate behaviour of what my colleague Martin Wolf already quoted, used to call, has called the grasshoppers, as opposed to the German ants who went on working and working, and the grasshoppers fiddled away while the sun was shining, and borrowed, and you had the imbalance. It was both of their fault, Germany's fault for lending, but the others for borrowing what they knew they couldn't repay. Um, Let me just, Hans put his finger on that moment of truth when Kohl and Mitterrand launched the euro or launch the, the, the economic and monetary union and really, as, as Anne says, accelerated the process. I think I would probably say that Cole actually embraced this with a lot of enthusiasm. Yes. He yes. really did believe in it. He really did believe in the Adenauer thesis that yes. Europe is the way to a German solution. And in a way, that's what I would say too, that German national interest is more Europe. Yeah. It's absolutely fundamental and therefore the solution to if there is a german question is more europe 
And the way that an Angela Merkel or a Helmut Kohl plays it in Europe has always been building coalitions, building alliances. I think the second point I'd make, Hans, is that I think you overstress the, the idea of victimhood. I have never felt in all my time in Germany that that is a very profound feeling. Yes, it comes out in some of the academic debates, in the historical strike, and, you know, the Dresden thing coming up. I remember the moment when Helmut Kohl dared for the first time to talk about all the Vertriebene, all the German refugees who'd flooded back to Germany, and that this was something nobody ever talked about. But in a way, I would see that was much more of a balancing act than a real grumbling feeling. And in the Eurozone crisis today, I don't think there's a sense of victimhood for Germany. I think there is a sense of there is a limit to how much we're prepared to pay. Um, so it's not resentment. They are rather embarrassed to discover that they are in a minority in the ECB, for instance. There was a wonderful moment at a, a Christian Democrat Party conference two years ago uh, when somebody wanted to introduce in the ECB, they wanted, had a resolution at the party conference, to introduce qualified, ballot, um, qualified majority voting in the ECB only to discover that even with qualified majority voting in the ECB, they'd still have been in a minority. So they couldn't actually bully and dominate the ECB. Um, uh, so German fear of encirclement has revived. I don't think so. I think Germany today, maybe alarmingly, is much more comfortable in its skin than the country I remember 20 or 30 years ago. Germany's actually finding that they're not on the front line vis-à-vis -vis Russia, as they were in the Cold War. Uh, they're in the centre of Europe. They're comfortable in the European Union. And so what's alarming is I don't think... See, they understand the extent of the crisis in the periphery and, yeah. and so on. Um, you quote, you know, the backlash in Germany and you quote the, the Spiegel and I would add to that Bild Zeitung and the Frankfurter Allgemeine. These newspapers have always been on that side. This is not new that they are hostile to the euro and so on. If the Süddeutsche Zeitung were coming out and so on, then I'd be much more, uh, I'd pay much more attention. But, you know, the left nationalists and right nationalists have always been there, but they don't wag the, the national tale. There is this huge middle ground in German politics, SPD and CDU, who are fundamentally deeply committed to binding themselves into a Europe. Uh, and therefore, your solution of saying, get more confrontational, I think it's just not going to happen, actually. Because um, we come back to the Mario Monti thesis. The problem is, actually, that they all are in the end just going to roll over and do what Mother Merkel says. Okay, on that point, um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I'd like, to, I'd, I'd like uh, Hans to have a, a quick opportunity to pick up any points you may point to them. Um, I want just have a, the reason, we will have a reasonable amount of time for questions and a fuller discussion. But Hans, is there any particular points that uh, Quentin raised that you would like to address? Well, maybe I'll just sort of make a sort of general response because, um, I mean, I think in many ways Quentin... Um, 
I I agree with much of what you what you said, um, and and I in a sense I don't think we're um, both describing the same country, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't think in a way though you're contradicting me because um, I think you're describing in a sense I think this is a sort of different level of, of analysis. Um, I think I, I I agree very much with your description of German psychology, um, and. Um, uh, and, and I'd make sort of two two points ab- ab- about that. Um, first of all, um, I mean, I think the way you've described Germany is, is, is quite right um, in terms of what Germans think they're doing. Um, and for example, I, 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 I agree with you completely that um, Germans, um, above all um, people like Merkel, think that they're acting in the European interest um, rather than just in the, in the German national interest. I don't doubt that for a moment. Um, um, however... Um, two points. I mean, first of all, um, what's very striking to me is um, um, are precisely the similarities in the kind of discourse now in Germany um, with the discourse in Germany, particularly between 1871 and, and 1914. Um, uh, <coughs> there are so many striking parallels, some of which I, I describe in, in the book. Um, uh, in particular, the way you sort of describe Germany as this um, profoundly provincial power. I mean, it was exactly like that in you know between 1871 and 1914 uh, as well. Um, and this kind of disconnect between the way that Germany was perceived from the outside and the way it was perceived um, on, on the inside. I mean, so many of these things are, are, are so similar. And, and the second point is to say that I'm certainly not claiming. Um, I mean, what, I, I'm not arguing that. Um, um, that Germany um, is intending to dominate Europe. Um, in fact, um, I mean, the argument I'm making is largely that this is a structural problem. So in a funny way, this is actually, um, I'm actually kind of defending Germany because, um, I mean, lots of critics of, of, of German policy since the Euro crisis began, including, you know, your colleagues like, like Martin, um, uh, essentially think that um, that. Uh, Germany is just pursuing bad policy on the basis of a lack of understanding of macroeconomics. Um, and it just needs to change the way that it thinks um, and um, act. And similarly, um, people who um, argue that Germany should, like Radek Sikorsky, the Polish foreign minister, who argued that Germany should lead Europe. Again, they, they think that Germany, through an act of will or through a, an intellectual <coughs> shift, um, can actually just solve this problem. Um, my argument is actually to say this is deeper than that. It's structural. There are, you know, the, the, the German response to the euro crisis illustrates the limitations actually of, of Germany's um, uh, economic power. It can't um, uh, do all the things that critics um, uh, argue that, that it should. Um, so, as I say, in a funny way, I'm actually um, uh, defending uh, Germany in here and saying this is a, a deeper um, structural um, problem. Um, I agree that Germany sees the solution, or the mainstream in Germany sees the solution as being more Europe. Um, uh, but in a way, I think that's part of the problem, um, because um, precisely because Germans tend to align um, their national interests with the European interest. Um, it seems to me there is this tendency that more Europe becomes more Germany. I agree with you completely that there is this sense in Germany, and by the way, this is also one of the parallels with, with the 19th century, this sense of um, Modell Deutschland, of um, a sort of triumphalism um, in, in Germany. As, as you put it, you know, we've got it right, everyone else should learn 
the lessons. Um, and, and so, you know, I think in a, in a way that German response to the Euro crisis has been an attempt to sort of universalise the lessons of German history, um, uh, particularly the lessons of the post-war Federal Republic and in particular the lessons of the Schroeder era. Um, uh, but uh, you know, this is where we, we get into economics, because um, my sense is that, um, uh, and, and you know, I think most um, economists outside of Germany would agree that that's simply not possible. You, you can't simply, um, not everybody can be a, a surplus country within, within the, the, the Eurozone. Um, I think, I'll, I think I'll stop there, except to say, um, I mean, I agree with you about the um, media in Germany that there has been, you know, I mean, it's true that the FRZ, for example, was always fairly Eurosceptic. I think it has become um, stronger. Um, but, but also what's changed is this sense of we're losing. Um, and, and that's where I think the sense of victimhood uh, does does come in. Um, and to give you one example of that, I mean, this is the Spiegel, which, which you mentioned as being a Eurosceptic newspaper. But if you look at the discourse in Germany in the last couple of years, um, I mean, I think it is quite subtle, and I'm really asking a question about the role that this sense of German victimhood plays in in um, in, in Germany's response to the Euro crisis. But I remember the, the, the Spiegel had a, a cover um, uh, a year or so ago, uh, and the headline was um, uh, "Die Inflationslüge," the inflation lie. Um, I mean, this was you know a kind of a, uh, the usual sort of um, German uh, fear of of, um, of, um, of inflation and. Um, and, but the subtitle was Die Schleichende Enteignung der Deutschen, which means the creeping of expropriation of the Germans, using a term um, that, um, that immediately calls to mind the expropriation of Jewish property during the Third Reich. Now, the, that's just one example. If you look at the discourse in Germany, there are so many of these things um, where, um, and this does go back, I think, to this kind of shift that took place around the millennium, where... Um, you know the the, the 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 book that launched this kind of new um, sense of German victimhood is a book called um, uh, Der Brand by Jörg Friedrich, The Fire, and it was about the bombing of, of, of Dresden. And he does precisely the same thing, which is to put Germans and, and he uses the language that's associated with the Holocaust. Um, but to put Germans in the position of victims in, in, in that. So, for example, he refers to the Allied bombing crews as Einsatzgruppen. And, 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 and so, you know, if you look at the discourse in Germany in the last 10 years, there have been these, and they are very subtle, but there have been these, these kind of ways in which um, this sort of sense of German victimhood um, comes through. And just, and just finally, the Süddeutsche, actually, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the Süddeutsche, because I have been um, struck in the last um, few years since the Euro crisis began at the shift in the Süddeutsche. To me, it does seem to have become much more Eurosceptic um, and, and very tough. Um, and again, in the last couple of weeks, the coverage of, in the Süddeutsche of, of the debate about QE and, and OMT, I mean, to me, almost indistinguishable from the FRT, actually. Good. Well, yes, um, we'll take some questions. If you can say who you are, please. Keep it short and sweet. No speeches. Um, and also please say who your affiliation, what your affiliation is. Start with Bernard Casey. Bernard Casey, uh, LSE and um, University of Warwick, next door to Coventry, which is Coventry Azir. Also an ex-Berliner and a part-time Frankfurter, which means not that I am a donut or a sausage. But um, I was intrigued when we discussed a bit of history and that we had no mention of um, Bateman Holweg and the September plan of uh, 1914. Unbelievably prescient for those who read it because he was only 100 years out but he actually got 
a perfect description of where we are now. I would also raise a question with respect to Quentin's uh, point, which is that Germany thinks it's got it right. Maybe it thinks it's got it right, but as an economist, I would suggest that it has got it badly wrong, partly for the reason which Hans uh, also suggests at the end, that not everybody can be an exporter, but equally, um, governments cannot and should not always um, run their economies like Schwäbische Hausfrauen. Um, so merely to think you've got it right doesn't mean you have got it right. Thank you. Um, let's, I suggest we take these one one by one. Just well, it was more of a comment than a question, button. anyway. Well, that's fine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm just <laughs> right. I want to do about sh- okay. Well, we don't. Okay. I'm happy to happy to move on so we can take as many questions as possible. Yes. Who else would like to put a uh, to ask ask a question? Yes, the lady there in the blue in the blue jumper, and then the gentleman behind her. My name is Katharina Schiele. I'm a student in Berlin and at SOAS in London. And um, thank you very much. It was really, really interesting to um, hear this, um, um, to hear your opinion on Germany. And I agree with most of what you said. And I have a question that I didn't solve for myself, and maybe you can help me with that. Because as you said, Germany is highly dependent on export and highly dependent on export to the European neighbors. Um, so it is in, Germans, in Germany's interest to have um, economic um, yeah, growth in European periphery. Um, but on the other hand, Germany is promoting um, a policy that will not bring this success. So how maybe that is a real paradox. Why yeah. isn't another policy happening? Yeah. Thank, I mean, that's a really good question, um, and um, um, it's, it's something I've been thinking about a, a lot as well. It seems to me that, um, that um, there's this tension um, in German policy um, since the crisis began, because on the one hand, as you say, um, it is in Germany's national interest to, first of all, to keep the single currency together is above all you know, one, of the, one of the key objectives for Germany. Um, but also to um, create growth in the periphery in order to, 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 um, uh, in order to um, um, continue to export there. And that's obviously slowed in the, in the last um, few years. Um, in order to do that, um, I'm not an economist, but most of the economists that, that I listen to say Germany has to become less competitive in relation to the, to the periphery. Um, and however, when you put that to Germans, and I don't know if you, you must have had these conversations too, um, German officials um, will say, no, but we can't do that because we need to remain competitive. Um, we don't compete anymore with, um, with the periphery in Europe. We compete with, with economies beyond Europe. In other words, we can't do anything that's going to reduce our competitiveness. Um, so there's this contradiction, it seems to me, um, that Germany can't resolve. Um, now, again, what's really fascinating about that, this contradiction between Europa politik and Weltpolitik, takes us right back to the 19th century, it seems to me, because this is precisely the dilemma that Germany faces then. And it, and it oscillates um, you know, between um, Europe and um, the Weltpolitik um, that was pursued uh, towards the end of the 19th century. Um, and um, I mean, I don't have time to go into it now, but it seems to me, again, this does sort of, to me, suggest that there's a kind of a geo-economic version of the kinds of, ju- of dilemmas that Germany um, once um, faced. Um, and just to come back to something that Quentin said earlier, which is relevant to this, 
I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not sort of paranoid about a German sort of pathology, um, but, um, but um, I think there is a kind of legitimate um, uh, criticism of my argument, which is that it may place too much emphasis on geography, um, because what I'm basically arguing is that Germany, you know, the world has changed in many ways, but Germany remains where it is at the heart of Europe. Um, and so therefore, and this is the idea of the sort of geoeconomics as well, that it faces analogous problems um, than, than it used to because, it, because it's in the same place as it, and it's the same size as it used to be. And, and so geography matters. Is, is there, there is a kind of an assumption about that. And that can be seen as a, as a problematic um, um, argument. Some international relations theorists would, would see that as a being very, a very problematic kind of assumption or conclusion to draw. Thank you, Hans. Quentin, did you want to say anything? Um, uh, you're going to have to tell me what Bateman Holvig wrote. I don't know what he wrote. Can I just briefly? Bateman Holvig was the German Chancellor in, um, from about 1909. Bateman Holvig was the German Chancellor from about 1907 to 1907. You're going to write to your map, actually. From 1909, I think, to 1917. <coughs> the September programme was something which the German high command, political high command, military high command, produced at the outbreak of the war. And basically, it set down what Germany's war aims were. Those of us who've been studying the origins of the First World War um, should look at it. And what he actually said was, what we were looking for was, he, he, he used the language of, I mean, how we would subordinate... Um, uh, Belgium to make it a vassal state of Germany, um, the US, Northern Europe, Southern Europe to be incorporated into um, an economic zone, he said, of which Germany would naturally hold dominance. And then there were other things about... Okay. Um, so is, is are you saying, saying that's where we are now? I'm saying that it was an extraordinarily prescient document what it also talked about, actually, and this is the other thing when you look at the origins of the First World War, is that a lot of discussion, both in Austro-Hungary from the German elites there and from the elites of Germany, was a sort of uh, a visceral anti-Slavic view, which actually viewed these peripheries not as places you know with which you've got to compete and keep going, but actually as places which the concept of Lebensraum well predates the 1930s and is to be found throughout um, okay. writing. But that I time. don't think we're there today. Well, well, I'm not so certain, and I spend a lot of my time. Fine. There. My answer to you is. From my view, I don't think we're there today. I mean, this is essentially the idea of uh, middle oil per that you're describing, right? Under German hegemony. Right. Bateman Right. Um, and, and this was kind of what I was trying to refer to in my previous answer as well, because, because it seems to me that you have, um, during this period, these two different versions of a German empire, an empire by land and an empire by sea. And you have some in Germany who, who argue that um, you know, the famous um, idea of, um, of Bülow's idea of a place in the sun, this idea that Germany, like other European great powers, deserved an empire beyond Europe by sea. And you have other Germans, like Bettmann Holweg, who argue that essentially Germany's destiny is within Europe. It should expand within Europe, we that's also, where it's, it's empire, empire across the sea. If you read the next paragraph, it's back across the sea. Yeah. Splendid. Um, okay, thank you. Now we must move on. Yes, the gentleman in the striped uh, scarf. Yes. Um, I'm Douglas Weber from the Business School in Seattle in, in France. Uh, I agree very, uh, by and large with uh, Hunter's analysis. I think the German question certainly is back. 
I'm not sure it ever went entirely away, to be quite honest. I don't entirely agree, though, with the thesis about the three shifts. Rather, I think what we are seeing is that basically some conflicts that have been there a long time, latent more or less, have become in recent times much more manifest. Firstly, on security, I think Germany was always very atlanticist when it came to organizing territorial defense uh, in Europe, but never particularly European, and when it comes to sort of uh, uh, out-of-area missions for a long time, profoundly isolationist. I mean, the, the idea of a big Switzerland is certainly uh, corresponds very closely to German public opinion on military intervention and similar kind of issues. I don't agree entirely uh, for the same reasons as Quentin Peerless expressed about the, about the notion of a, of a rising sense of victimhood. When it comes to economic questions, here I think what we're seeing is simply a, a resurgence of a long-standing, I would call it, German monetary nationalism. When you go back to the 1970s, every major project for monetary integration and cooperation in Europe was fiercely contested by the Bundesbank, uh, and uh, often uh, any kind of agreement was sort of was brought about by the chancellors against Bundesbank opposition. With the euro, basically, there was kind of compromise between German concerns about monetary stability on the one hand and the Finance Central Bank. On the other hand, of course, there was a, there was a common currency, which is what, which is what France and the other countries were, were aiming for. Uh, for a long time, this seemed to work out relatively well for Germany, and uh, its uh, agenda of monetary affairs was, uh, was pretty much fulfilled. Over the last couple of years, of course, bit by bit since 2012, some very important concessions have been made by, by Germany, uh, to the point now, of course, where uh, Germans are increasingly concerned, the media, politicians, the right especially, plus public opinion, is whether or not, in fact, as you rightly said, Germany is losing control of monetary policy uh, in Europe. And finally, my last, my last press point would be, uh, I think that the political class and elites in Germany remain profoundly pro-European in this sense, the idea of more Europe still prevails. My concern is for the future, and I think you actually expressed that to yourself, that uh, this may not get the same kind of public support that has been in the case in the past, and therefore we might see in Germany the gradual rise of a more extreme or more nationalist right. The alternative for Deutschland is one, one manifestation of this. Uh, and in this sense, in Germany, you might see uh, the beginnings of the same kind of trend. Uh, of course, you've seen other European uh, member states over the last yeah. couple of years as well. Thank you. But um, if not, I shall move on. But please feel free to. I mean, let me pick up on the last point because I wanted to talk a little bit about Alternative für Deutschland, perhaps, and is it this? I mean, it's a rather strange entity. One, it's very clearly only about, as far as Europe is concerned, it's only about the euro. Now the party is starting to get into a real muddle about where it goes on immigration with clearly two factions, and now they're starting to fight amongst themselves. So their attitude to Pegida, you know, so on, there is a much stronger faction that basically perhaps comes from eastern Germany that is more anti-immigration, and it's the old uh, West German ones who, who are more the professors. I actually think it's going to implode. Uh, I don't think it is going to last uh, very long, uh, certainly it's going through awful travails. I think that what Hans was saying was that it's been picking up support. It's been picking up support precisely in three lender, which are all Eastern lender. Um, and it's, it's, it's less clear. So the jury is out, I think, about where it goes, but it has no charismatic leader. It has, uh, and it has a 
fairly vicious battle for power going on within the leadership at the moment. It's very interesting. I mean, I guess I guess we have to have this discussion again in a few years' time to, to find out who's right. I mean, my, my instinct is um, that, um, um, that just as it seems to me that there's a zero-sum game between Germany and the periphery, in other words, whatever is perceived as being a defeat in Germany is perceived as being a, victim, a victory in the periphery and vice versa. So there is also almost a kind of a zero-sum game between the um, extremist parties uh, in, in the periphery and the AFD. In other words, um, the, the only scenario in which I can see um, that um, AFD dis- sort of fizzles out in Germany is one in which the Eurosceptic parties, the extremist parties in the periphery, um, become um, even more powerful than they are now. Because the only scenario in which I can imagine that happening is one where Germany wins, essentially, in this kind of zero-sum game. Um, in other words, that there are no concessions, um, that Germany, um, not just that it, isn't, that it manages to hold the line in terms of, for example, debt neutralisation or inflation, but that it's able actually to push back um, that Merkel is able to push back in such a way that she um, that the AFD loses support. However, it seems to me the consequence of that is that parties like Podemos and, and the Front National become stronger. Um, and so, um, as I say, it seems to me there's, there's a zero-sum game there too. And this also brings me back to um, something that, that came up earlier, which is, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I have my own kind of instincts about... Um, about um, you know who's right and who's wrong here in terms of the policy, but in a way that's not the point. The point is there is a zero sum game. That is the the kind of alarming development within the eurozone, um, and so it doesn't matter in in a, in, a, in a sense who's right and who's wrong in terms of the economics. It seems to me what matters is can they re- can they reconcile somewhere? And in particular, can France and Germany? actually meet in the middle somewhere um, and it doesn't seem to me that they can that's why I'm so pessimistic okay uh, right I'll just keep faith with the gentleman I, I sent in then uh, in the middle and then David Cadieux <coughs> yes <definitely. coughs> uh, well first of all uh, my name's Charles Randall I'm a, a part-time postgraduate student at Queen Mary up the road uh, first of all, thank you very much for a, a, an extremely illuminating uh, discussion. Um, I uh, was born and grew up in Germany, and I must say I don't, I don't necessarily recognise uh, some of the descriptions of the country, which seems to me to be one which is still uh, very deeply liberal, uh, libertarian, and very deeply European. So the uh, I, I find it difficult to envisage this escalating uh, and unresolved confrontation going on indefinitely. I'd, I was wondering if I could invite the two of you to get your crystal balls out and speculate between uh, whether we will see uh, an, an ever-increasing uh, escalating confrontation between Germany and uh, the periphery, uh, or whether, in fact, we will see a continuation of what I think we've seen for a number of years now, which is a muddling through... Uh, without any particular resolution uh, of these issues, but a muddling through at a tolerable level. Um, I was wondering if you would care to speculate on, on that. Okay. Well, I, I would Thank definitely you. belong to the muddling through camp. Uh, I think, in fact, uh, for all the criticism of the way that Merkel and indeed Schäuble handled the first two years of the Eurozone crisis, that absolute conviction that we've got to get confidence back in the markets 
was won by the sheer stubbornness of Merkel's sake and by gradually building up the ASM and gradually building up the set of rules. And then uh, that moment of truth where basically Draghi and Merkel did a deal. That Draghi would go out there and say, I'll do whatever it takes. And Merkel said, and I won't do anything to, to stop you. Now, has that gone into a wobble now on quantitative easing? I don't think so. I think the deal is still fundamentally there. And the whole style of the way Merkel w runs her politics, which is constantly to try and build greater room for manoeuvre, she's utterly non-confrontational. She's always about just trying to bring more people into the room so that eventually she persuades them all. It's something that we've seen fascinating on the way she's played the Ukraine and Russia policy, uh, where basically she had to persuade three very difficult constituencies to take a tough line on Russia. German business, her own coalition, and her European partners. And she did it. Um, you know, not by beating anybody up, but by, by putting... So I would still believe, and I believe that what I still say to my colleagues, whether it's Martin Wolf or anybody else, at the end of the day, the euro's going to survive, the eurozone's going to survive, Greece is not going to leave, they will muddle through and manage. I mean, I think you know already that I'm more pessimistic than that. Um, I suppose... My response, would, I mean, again, I, I'm not sure I entirely disagree. It's just that I think the muddling through may be enough to keep the eurozone um, together, to keep to keep Greece in, and so on. But it seems to me that it's not enough to create growth, to create jobs um, in Greece, in Spain, or even in France. Um, and so it does seem to me that there's this kind of gradual. Um, uh, I mean, there is a there is a momentum and a dynamic whereby. Um, more extremist parties win, win more and more support. The political centre is, is hollowed out. And I don't think that is, um, that is sustainable. Um, I hope that after the election of, of, um, of Syriza, this is a kind of a wake-up call. Um, uh, but I fear that it won't be for the reasons I've described, that actually Germany will, will kind of dig its heels in. There may be some um, uh, flexibility um, around budgets and so on around the margins, but I don't think it's enough to make a... A difference and my real fear um, is not so much that the euro breaks up um, although I do think that is still a possibility but my real fear is more that um, in the process of doing everything to keep the euro together um, uh, the EU transforms into something completely different from from what we what we know uh, and what the founding fathers had in mind it's already it seems to me in the last five years transformed um, into something much much more coercive um, but also something with much deeper divisions. I mean, in particular, this division between um, the North and, and the South. And I think George Soros has very eloquently described this, this danger that what you have is a, is a kind of a self-perpetuating dynamic where you have capital flight from the periphery, you potentially have population flight as, as well. And, and then what starts to happen is, that, as, as, as Soros argues, that the, 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 the divide between the surplus countries and the, def and the deficit countries becomes sort of structural um, and, and, and self-reinforced so that you have this kind of permanently disadvantaged periphery 
that's a very different kind of um, Europe from the Europe that the founding fathers had in mind, or even the, the creators of the single currency who had in mind something that would create convergence rather than divergence in the way we're seeing. So, so my fear in a sense is, or what I think is the more likely outcome is not so much that the euro breaks apart in this dramatic way, um, but that gradually um, this process continues and, and, and Europe becomes unrecognisable. Thank you. Uh, David, David Cadier. Mm-hmm. David Cadier, teaching fellow here at the, at the LSE. Um, thanks for a very interesting presentation. I'd like to push on two points, if I may. First, uh, the point on this whole issue being structural and the use, actually, of international relations theory to understand it. Because my feeling so is the international relations theories, you kept mentioning them. Yeah. Yeah. My feeling is that it's actually very contextual, and the context is the Eurozone crisis, right? So, in other words, it's a lot about economics and a lot about the EU, right? And, I mean, it's not at a European Institute's uh, event that I'm going to point that academics studying the EU have been struggling to find the right theories, and they actually relinquished the uh, international relations theories because it was not really applicable, yeah. and also the, the foreign policy analysis theories, right? Just the point on balancing, for example. Is it really balancing in the traditional sense of opposing power to power, or is it just some states not being too keen in seeing other states sending them to apply austerity measures that are going to cause them the next election, right? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the fact that Poland is less afraid of Germany than it has ever been for 400 years, isn't it like a counter argument to the fact that Germany's power is actually increasing, right? Yeah. Is, is it a kind of traditional balancing of uh, power? So there's my first question about the, uh, the possibility to apply uh, IR theories to, to, this, to this debate. You mentioned, I think it's very important, Central European states, right? And when you talk to Central European diplomats, um, the impression they give is that, of course, there is the German economic power, but also this ability of Germany to listen or to integrate the views of medium-sized and small powers inside the EU. Some other states might not be as good as that, right? That doesn't mean that Germans would actually act upon it, but that's what the, the diplomats say. So again, it's more of an EU context, I think. And my question is, when the world is going to knock at Europe's door again, right, uh, will it still be the same kind of German uh, power that could be dominating? And my second example is France, because you mentioned 2003. And I think it's very interesting to think that in 2003, Schroeder and Chirac were kind of eye-to-eye on the Iraq issue, right? Today, France is back as one of the staunchest Atlanticists. Uh, why? Because actually France is deeply afraid of seeing uh, the uh, Western world unraveled, afraid of seeing the Western values being defeated all over the place, afraid of seeing the US not being the hegemon. So how could you actually explain this difference in perception? Why isn't Germany actually seeing the same thing? Is it Germany afraid of this kind of new post-Western world or post-American world? And what's going to happen when actually, again, the world is going to knock at the door, when ISIS is going to be the new problems and so on? Will German power still as be as, as dominant in Europe, in your view? Thanks. Thank you. David. Yes, I'm sure Hans will drop some thoughts in here. Um, yeah, no, really good questions. Um, and, and I'm not sure I have a, a, a good answer. Um, on the first question about, um, um, about IR theory, um, my attempt to think about geoeconomics was, was precisely um, uh, an attempt to, um, to think about how the current situation within the EU um, is different from um, sort of traditional, you know, what realists would see as sort of the traditional anarchy of the international system. It's clearly very, very different. 
Um, and yet it does seem to me in the last five years um, that, um, that the EU is now different um, from the way that um, uh, European studies describes it. Um, and so one of the questions I've been asking and, and one of the questions in the, in, that sort of runs through the book in a way is about the nature of international relations within the EU. Um, and is it either that um, international relations within the EU haven't changed as much as we thought they had or that they have in some way, um, the pre-1945 international relations with, within Europe have in some way returned? Um, and, um, and I don't know the answer to that question, but my, my best attempt by looking at the, the German example... Um, and, and you're clearly my, um, in a sense, the way I've been thinking about this is sort of Germanocentric in the sense that I'm looking at this problem through the German question. Um, um, it, it does it does seem to me as if um, the sort of concept of, of, of geoeconomics helps. What's interesting is um, that there do seem to be these striking parallels um, to me. And so, for example, your um, question about balancing is clearly true. This is a different kind of balancing than in the past. Um, and so what I try to describe is, is often these sort of geoeconomic equivalents of, of, of things that in traditional international relations would be um, using military power. So you might want to call it a kind of soft balancing, for example. I mean, that term has been, has been used in other contexts, in fact, in the context of, of opposition to the US in the Iraq war. Um, or perhaps we need a new term for that. And, and, um, and I think there, is, there are sort of important theoretical questions that, that this throws up that, 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 I, that I don't have um, answers to. Um, secondly, on the question of the sort of the, the outside world, sort of geopolitics returning, I mean, in a sense this was um, the point you made at, and the point you made at the beginning about geopolitics and, and geoeconomics. Um, I've wondered about that too. Um, the, 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 the question of whether the power relations within Europe could change dramatically if the outside environment changes and, and if, there are, if there are genuinely existential threats um, that Germany perceives. This takes us to the Ukraine debate, I think, because in a way it's happened already, I think. Um, and one of the interesting um, I mean, there has been. We've hardly touched on on on, on Ukraine uh, on German foreign policy beyond Europe. Um, there's a very interesting question now, I think, about the way that German foreign policy is changing in response to the Euro crisis. Just before the Euro crisis began, the German Foreign Ministry announced this review, and there's lots of soul searching going on. And, and I think it's not yet clear how much and in what way German foreign policy would change, but it, it clearly is changing in 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 some ways. I think, though, what's interesting is that even despite the clear threat to the European security order, um, uh, although Germany is has been prepared, and, and Quentin mentioned this, to um, show leadership in terms of imposing economic sanctions um, on, on, um, on Russia, um, it's been very resistant um, to the idea of using military means as part of the response to, to, um, to Russian revisionism. This has caused much anger in Poland and Baltic states and so on. For example... Well, yes, but nevertheless, I mean, the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is that um, you might have thought, I mean, I argued, and, and as Quentin mentioned, I finished this book before the Ukraine crisis happened, and the argument was about Germany becoming a geoeconomic power. 
Um, and when the Ukraine crisis happened, you might have expected that Germany would once again become a geopolitical power, as it were. Um, and there well, I think people expected the opposite. They expected Germany to sit on its hands and do nothing. Well, and what's fascinating is actually it did take the Well, lead. but only using economic means. This is my, this is my point. So, that in, so actually, to me, the surprising thing, in a way, I mean, I was maybe coming at this from a slightly different pers- perspective. Um, to me, this, this seemed like such an existential threat um, that Germany might have been forced to rethink its whole um, um, uh, reluctance to use military means. It might, for example, have been forced to increase its defence budget um, to 2% of, of GDP or, to, imp- or to, um, to improve its military capabilities or change its attitude to deploying those military capabilities. What's striking to me is that at least so far, and this may still change, I don't know, um, actually, despite the sort of strategic shock of Ukraine, Germany has remained a geoeconomic power. That's actually what's very interesting to me. So I suppose I wonder what scenario could happen under which this kind of picture that you've described would would um, would change German threat perceptions. I, I don't know. Mm. Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, I want. <laughs> One thing I find uh, quite interesting and, in fact, amusing to 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 consider is how, when, um, the, the, as we all know, the whole idea of the European Union, as the French saw it, and, of course, the French being the driving force in the 1950s, was to keep Germany under control, given the fact that Germany was likely to rebuild its economy, its industry, and then would uh, be in a pole position to eventually to ex- exercise um, economic primacy uh, in, in Europe. And um, what seems to have come to pass is what the French... Uh, feared might happen, but not in the way that they they expected. Uh, that uh, I remember when I was in when I was in government many moons ago in the last serving the last conservative government. Being, um, I was being told by the French all the time uh, when was, the French couldn't understand why uh, we British were so uh, relaxed um, about um, about German uh, economic strength and the likelihood of that continuing to grow. And the French, uh, French saying to us, how can you be so naive? Can you not see that political power will always follow economic power? In the, in, the, in, the, in the end. They think the British stunningly naive, but the most fundamental insight into France's, in many ways, its view of the world, as, as well as its, its, its Western values, and I'm delighted to see its uh, strong alignment geopolitically and militarily now, um, or its leadership role, rather, and to the extent it's coming to be seen as the only neocon power left um, <laughs> in Europe, which I, I personally applaud. Perhaps not everyone in this room does, but I certainly do. But what is... What has happened after being lectured for so long that, that we British just didn't understand the relationship between economics and politics, and that, which the French did, and the French always pride themselves on their understanding of this relationship. Therefore, of course, the French argument went, as we all know, uh, that is why you need the, you need the euro to control, uh, to prevent the inevitable political strengthening of, of Germany, which would just happen. Would happen. And of course, the precisely opposite happened. The euro helped deliver Germany um, with its economic strength in as a position effectively now of, of the lender of last resort of the eurozone that uh, Germany has been handed a greater degree of political power than the French in their wildest nightmares couldn't have imagined. And they, the French, helped to deliver this, to produce this. Extraordinary irony in the situation. Anyway, sorry, it's a slight dig- digression, but... Um, 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 
I think we need to drink. Yes, uh, we have to bring things to a, co- a close. I'll take one question. Is there somebody I've cruelly overlooked who's been desperately trying to get my my attention? Yes, actually, and you and you're not you're not opportunistic raising your hand. You had did indeed have your hand up before, so I am sorry. Please, yes, keep it short and sweet, and then drinks await us outside. And as I said at the beginning, everyone is very very warmly invited to come and drink. Please. My my name is Jacob Arby. I'm a student at JFS. Um, thank you for the very illuminating speech. I'd like to kind of look into more of the long term. Um, I think Germany has kind of historically been in such a position of dominance partly because its kind of demographic majority has been very heavily populated. But of course, um, there is now got an ageing population and um, it's been yeah. supplemented by immigration, but of course that's under increasing resistance due to Pegida and even uh, our own politicians. Um, so my question would be, what are the consequences of a demographically less dominant Germany, less dominant compared to countries like Britain, uh, with regard to the German question and with regard to Germany's relationship to Europe? Shall I go first? Yeah. I don't know. Um, <coughs> I Clearly there is, a, there is a challenge there for Germany. Um, its demographics may be skewed still somewhat by the unification effect and the complete collapse in the birth rate in East Germany and that's now um, uh, coming back again Uh, uh, the um, I think that I mean it's another of these themes that Angela Merkel bangs on again and again and again is the demographics and so on Um, therefore there is a certain clarity in German minds about that. I think it also comes back to this absolute conviction in German minds that you've got to be competitive globally. This isn't just a matter of being competitive within the Eurozone. And it's actually that great effort after the shock of unification that put the economy back on its feet was to get competitive again globally. Um, I think the whole of Europe is basically affecting the, facing the same demographic challenge. It's marginally different in some countries than in others, but look at it in Italy, look at it in Germany, and indeed, of course, look at it probably most dramatically of all in Russia. Um, so I, I just wanted to say one more thing and then about the Franco-German relationship that I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, and as we've seen over decades, it, there's always been these ups and downs. Is this a moment of truth where Germany has actually significantly, if you like, cut adrift, which is slightly, I think, Hans's argument, and, and is braver about having a non-Atlanticist, non-American policy? We had Iraq, and then we had the NSA thing, and, and that, that backlash in Germany is quite strong. And the Germany, I remember from the 60s, uh, was such a pro-American country, really. Um, uh, so that's very striking and fascinating that France should, you should describe France as Atlanticist now. But what I would say is what's happened to Germany is not because of Germany muscling in for power, it's Germany moving into a vacuum because Britain and France are going through massive national identity crises, um, as we see with the rise of the Front National and the rise of UKIP. And there is no very clear or coherent foreign policy thinking coming out of either of our countries. And Germany's being sort of sucked into this space to try and make up for it and is finding it very uncomfortable. 
Sorry, that's all I said. Um, just briefly on France, my favourite illustration of this um, is that um, is uh, I think a year or so ago, Bob Kagan, uh, who famously wrote of Paradise and, pa- and Power, Europeans are from um, Venus, Americans are from Mars, said um, in an interview with the New York Times, I have a new rule now, um, wherever the French go, we should follow. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. Um, no, on, I would agree. Not on then. the um, on the um, uh, demographic issue, that's a really good question. I think this is a, a really huge issue. I think the Germans are actually quite aware of this, um, uh, as, as Quentin suggested, um, and I think it's also part of the reason for this sort of slight urgency in German policy, because I think there is this sense of we have to set the rules for Europe now. Um, because we won't um, uh, have this uh, position of power um, forever. Um, I hate to end on such a um, uh, such a pessimistic note, but I must add just that I have to, this is this is this is I do find this quite worrying in a way because pre- precisely because of the d- German demographic challenge and as you mentioned the. Um, uh, the resistance that there is in Germany um, to um, non-white immigration. Um, Precisely because of that, um, it does seem to me that in a sense Germany has quite a powerful interest um, in trying to suck um, smart young um, Spaniards uh, and Greeks uh, and so on, people from the periphery, um, to Germany. In, In a sense that is the perfect solution um, to um, to uh, to this problem, uh, I find that quite um, quite worrying, um, actually. And, and just to and, and and the sort of crazy thing about that, and this, I think you see this all, all already, is that Germany is able to justify that um, again in the name of the European interest um, and in the name of freedom of movement. Um, so Germany has been very positive about the um, about the influx of, of of young people from from elsewhere from, from the eurozone uh, periphery. Um, and you know, the idea that this might represent a, a brain drain, I mean, Germans are sort of baffled by this idea. So, well, this is freedom of movement. This is, this is what Europe is supposed to be like. Yeah. Um, to me, that feels like a, a sort of a perversion of, of, um, uh, of what Europe um, should, be, should be like. In, in, okay. On immigration, Germany is a dramatically more relaxed about immigration than it was when I was in Bonn in the 90s. Yeah. I yes, mean, Deutschland true. is kind Einwanderungsland was, was the slogan then. That's true. But it is now totally accepted as but, a country of immigration. In order to have the amount of immigration you'd need in order, in order to solve the demographic problem, I mean, I don't think Germany, Germ- the Germans agree that they've become more tolerant um, and, and, and so on, but I don't think Germans would be able to cope with that amount of, of non-white immigration, let's say from North Africa or, or, or from, mm. from elsewhere. I don't think Germans would be able That's to cope with that. Um, and, 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 yeah, and yeah, the other thing is that Pegida, I think, in the last sort of few weeks. I mean, I share, I shared. And What's still, impressive is surely the counter Pegida demonstrations much bigger. Except yes, but has Pegida not slightly? I mean, it, it, in my, I, I, I was also very positive about the shift that's taken place in the last sort of ten years or so um, in terms of accepting multiculturalism in Germany. But I have to say, in the last sort of month or two, I've started to question that again as a consequence of Pegida. Um, there is clearly a kind of an <coughs> undercurrent that that has certainly surprised me. I, this came out of nowhere as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Yes, I agree, I do. Yeah. Okay, well, um, we must draw things to a close now. I think we can, I hope we can all agree that we've had a really tremendous hour and a half, a really stimulating, textured, knowledgeable discussion. Thanks to everybody here, and above all, thanks to our two excellent speakers, Hans and Quentin, a big thank you to you both for giving such a stimulating um, 
leading such a stimulating discussion. Um, I hope, uh, well, uh, we'll have the opportunity, should you wish to, to continue afterwards. Maybe you want to talk about lighter and more fun and optimistic <laughs> things. But the drinks await outside. Thank you all for coming. And I'm sure in time on LSEA, we would like to show our appreciation to our marvellous speaker. Thank you.